Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. To talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. There's the immediate urgency of the issue, which is the need for all people to feel safe. And safety is a law and order issue, and that does come down to the role of police, of how they manage and how they uh, enable communities and towns and families in those places and businesses to feel safe. Then there's the deeper issue of why are the children roaming? Why are the parents not there? So this is what we're trying to uh, work closely with now. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Indigenous leaders in the Northern Territory are calling for long-term solutions to address alarming rates of crime and antisocial behaviour in Alice Springs. Joining me to discuss these issues in further detail are Director of Research at the Jumbana Institute, Professor Lyndon Coombs, and Indigenous Affairs Editor at The Guardian Australia, Lorena Allen. Lorena, what have been your observations on the situation in Alice Springs? The, the crucial thing for me is how much of the rhetoric around what's going on has echoes of the intervention back in 2007. The way the media has responded to this crisis, as they keep calling it, um, is so much like those days. Those of us who are around then remember the, the kind of the moral panic that's been built up in media that don't normally give a toss about the conditions that our people are forced to live in. So that was the main thing for me was how much this echoed the intervention and how anxious and worried people in Aboriginal people on the ground in Alice Springs are that they will get that treatment again because we know that for the last 20 odd years since the intervention began under Howard, the punitive policies that that the intervention rolled out have had a huge impact on the current situation. Lyndon, what about you? You've obviously followed policy in this area for a long time. What have you made of the situation? Yeah, it's um, similar to that. And the Prime Minister, I think the way that he got uh, baited into going out there and doing a running um, trip, as a former uh, political advisor, I would have physically restrained him from doing that. Um, for a whole range of reasons. Uh, That's something that the Minister um, and other Indigenous members could have done and and the Prime Minister could have gone out when the dust settled, been more considered, more informed um, and take a much calmer approach, I think. As you say, Lorena, that the the echoes of the intervention um, really worry the people there. People like to criticise Indigenous people for not speaking out about certain issues, and there are reasons for that. They, firstly, they do speak out, and those voices are often minimised, but when they do speak out, they're, they're hit with punitive measures. So it was all a bit of a mess, and I, I think um, the Prime Minister got played on that. I was going to ask your views on this, Lorena, because, of course, you've been reporting on this for The Guardian. What do you make of the response by the Prime Minister and the federal government? Well, like Lyndon said, that was a fly-in, fly-out visit by the Prime Minister. He was there for a couple of hours. Um, I think in a certain, to a certain extent he was responding to that, the panic that was being built up in, in the media about 
where's elbow? He needs to be here. He needs to be on the ground. He needs to show he cares. So there was a lot of pressure on him to do that. And it could be perceived as a capitulation to that, um, particularly because he's, he was there briefly. Um, but he took his senior Indigenous colleagues with him, Pat Dodson, Marion Scrimminger, Mullandiri McCarthy, Linda Burney, and he was flanked by his most senior Indigenous uh, caucus members. So it was an interesting united front, if you like. The fact that he even sat down and talked to Congress and other the Tangajira Women's Safety Group was, I think, um, a sign that he he wanted to appear to, to, to do something. But I don't know that it really worked because the criticism now is, well, you just flew in and flew out. You didn't really spend time here. Um, the, the challenge now will be for the Territory Government and the Feds to come up with a plan that will put the interests of ab- the Aboriginal community first and consult them about what the next steps will be to manage this crime wave. I had, I mean, a friend of mine said to me, the reason why it's a crime wave now and it's a panic now is because a whole lot of white people are being... Um, in, you know, it, it's it's spread across the town. But this is the kind of life that our people have been living for a long time in remote communities and they deserve better. Lyndon, what do you think are the longer-term solutions? Lorena talks about an approach of uh, talking and listening to people on the ground and that gets said a lot. As you say, people have been speaking out on what they think should happen in their communities and not being listened to. That's certainly been part of what they've been saying this week when people have sat down and listened. From your perspective, is there a way forward? Yeah, I think so. I think there's always a way forward and the people up there have been saying that for a long time. And this is where I get frustrated because there are certain voices that are promoted that diminish the hard work of Indigenous people, the hard work of communities just to appease their masters. And that's what happened here. I think context is everything. It happened in, you know, in the heat of Australia Day and that perennial debate that we have and that's such a horrible time and at a, at a point in time where Indigenous people are seeking to assert their rights and, and seeking a voice to Parliament. That's the context. And the other side wanted to pull a trick to undo all that and they did it and they did it well. The other issue which has been front and centre of media attention recently has been, of course, the upcoming referendum on the Indigenous voice to Parliament. And both sides of the debate have been launching their campaigns in the past week. Lorena, you've, of course, been following this very closely for your reporting in The Guardian. In fact, it's the place I go to to try and work out what's going on. How do you think things have been progressing so far? There's a lot of threads to pull to answer that one. I think there's not universal support for a voice to parliament in the Aboriginal community. And it's very important that people who have dissenting views, who want to ask questions, who aren't certain that this is going to do what we need it to do, those voices came to the fore and not before time. I think it's a really healthy discussion we're now having. It's a very public discussion we're now having. And I think there's non-Indigenous people who are confused now um, who think, well, what a, am I, is this a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know anymore. And that's the other point I want to make is that there's, since Albanese went to Gama in July last year, there's been six months now where the same talking points have been repeated and calls for detail 
genuine calls, not the disingenuous calls of politicians who already know the answer to their questions, but people in, you know, our neighbours, you know, people we know want answers to. And it's about time that they got those answers. I think that it's I think it's really crucial now that we we have some clarity around what the next steps will be because I think the you know there's a lot of uncertainty now where there wasn't a few months ago so we need some more information and we need it quickly. Lyndon the calls for a treaty before a voice have been growing how do you see that playing out and I guess just picking up on Lorena's point about diversity of views in the Indigenous community becoming more public. Uh, what's been your observation of, of how that's landing? Yeah, it's been interesting watching the the sort of to and fro of that. I think this is a critical time just for us uh, uh, as peoples. You know, there is a quite pragmatic when it comes to these things. There is a proposal that is um, achievable in terms of the voice. I understand that there are a range of um, opinions within our communities, as there always is on everything. Um, So to me, it's not so much what argument might prevail, but the way in which we have the debate, because um, this is something, in my view, doesn't have the potential to do great harm if a voice was to succeed. But it is a test of how we talk to each other and and the treaty voice and the treaty work, which is what we do and is a big part of my day-to-day job. To me, it feels like a bit of a tester for us. How do we coalesce? How do we engage with each other? Treaty is about nation-to-nation, community-to-community conversations, not necessarily agreeing, not all thinking the same thing, but how will we have these conversations? So that's the sort of key thing for me at the moment. Uh, and it is important to, to hear all those views and, you know, to you know, everyone, a lot of people would like to see Indigenous people sort of at each other's throats and, and throw a wedge in to, to do that to us. But that's where I see it. I, I see it as a, a good opportunity for us to start talking and acting like sovereign nations, disagreeing, but, you know, agreeing to move forward. You're listening to Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Barron and my guests this week are Lorena Allen and Lyndon Coombs. Well, let's turn overseas now. And of course, Donald Trump uh, over the summer kicked off his 2024 presidential run. Lorena, were you surprised that Trump is going to run for president again? Am I surprised? No, I'm not surprised. He's just, he is Mr. Teflon, isn't he? He would just, he'll keep going. What about you, Lyndon? What do you make of the state of US politics right now? Um, interesting as always. I'm not surprised. I think he was always going to run for a whole range of reasons, mainly the grift, which is um, his priority. Um, but, you know, I was just fascinated by him uh, ever since he went down that escalator. Um, just fascinated that someone like that could work their way through American politics, you know, this grand freedom experiment, the greatest democracy on the planet. As a, you know, as a kid, I always grew up hearing and, and for someone like Donald Trump to uh, defecate all over it and attain the highest office, I, I, I am still amazed at that. But I am, in saying that now, disappointed because he's quite boring. 
he's playing the same old hits from, you know, the last two years. He he lacks energy. It seems like he doesn't want to leave Mar-a-Lago and I want him to, to be a bit more controversial. I've no doubt he may provide that for you. And perhaps on the opposite end of the scale in terms of what politicians stand for in terms of their values um, and a bit more close to home, of course, New Zealand Prime Minister Prime Minister Jacinta Ardern recently announced that she wouldn't be contesting the next election and, and of course, has now stepped away from that uh, leadership role to the surprise of many. Lyndon, how do you think she'll be remembered in politics? I know that uh, people... Uh, like to criticise her on a whole range of things, but she probably attained the Prime Ministership a little early, but she grew into it very quickly. And, uh, you know, uh, issues of the day that came up, she dealt with uh, so well, uh, you know, with great intellect. Um, And as a woman... Um, she was obviously held to a whole range of different standards about whether she could have that strength of leadership, and she did that, you know, for New Zealand over a long period of time, um, I, you know, and chose to go out um, on her own terms. I, I think it'll take a, a couple of years. <laughs> the new Prime Minister is already struggling on a few things, but... Um, yeah, I think when we look back, um, and particularly when New Zealanders look back, they'll look back on that era fondly. Lorena, I was interested in your thoughts of, on this. And of course, one of the points that was made was the higher cost that she paid as a woman in public life and in that role. And I think only after she stepped down did people start to appreciate just how much pressure and how much trolling she had had to put up with. What are your thoughts about her and her time in office? Uh, I agree with Lyndon. I think that um, she showed great emotional intelligence and was challenged from almost the beginning of her prime ministership um, with really nation-defining moments that she had to lead through. So, the, you know, the Christchurch massacre, there was um, that the volcanic eruption. I mean, there were horrendous sort of um, natural disasters that they went through. And at the same time, she was pregnant and gave birth and was a new mother. As, at the same time, she's running the country. She's, got, she's breastfeeding a new baby. And, then, and that, to me, was an incredible demonstration of, you know, resilience and determination. And um, we don't... And she was held to a much higher standard than, than most men. And I guess her great legacy will be that it'll be easier for the next woman in the job. Well, it's hard to believe that it's February already. And um, I note that um, you two were our uh, year in review panel for 2022. And I guess my final question for you both today, and I'll start with you, Lorena, is when we get you back for the year in review in 2023, what are you hoping that you will have achieved? I think um, this is already showing us how challenging, how hard it's going to be for our mobs to get through. I'll be happy if I'm still standing in October after the referendum vote has been had because it is already very full on. Um, It's hard not to feel like this is a referendum on our right to exist in our own land. And um, that's really, I mean, that's really, if we have a no vote, um, that's really what it, it will feel like. So there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of worry, a lot of dread 
about what might happen if the vote goes down, assuming they're determined to, to go to a vote and we have to survive that. At the end, at the end of 2023, I'll just be glad that um, if the country's still, I mean, if we get a yes vote. Um, <laughs> Lyndon, what about you? What do you hope by the end of the year you will have achieved? Um, I hope I will have achieved a lot. I, I think it's better, even though it's really difficult in times of upheaval when, you know, conversations like the Alice Springs one and, and others are happening. I would prefer that than to have silence and, and to have people just comfortable with things going on because we need some disruption. And I think those are opportunities for disruption. Yes, they come. Um, you know, with some cuts and bruises. But this is going to be a year where people are talking about Indigenous rights, not just the voice, and it's been shown that we're talking about treaty and we've been talking about treaty for a long time. So I'm hoping <laughs> hoping to be energised by it, uh, but also to fall in the heap at the end. Well, let's see whether we're energised or in a heap at the end of the year. But thank you both so much for shedding some insights and bringing a Blackfella perspective to the topics we've been talking about this week. My guests have been Director of Research at the Jumbana Institute, Professor Lyndon Coombs, and Indigenous Affairs Editor at The Guardian Australia, Lorena Allen. Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia, on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. The situation in Alice Springs, high rates of crime and antisocial behaviour has brought into sharp focus the complex issues facing many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. Senator for the Northern Territory, Mullandiri McCarthy, has been at the forefront of efforts to address the situation and will join me shortly. First, though, a song from Gamilaroi singer-songwriter Lauren Ryan. Driving Saturday afternoon Pass me by And I'm just savoring Familiar sights We shared some history This town and I You're doing well After all this time You boys look just the same Number two is the happy hour At one of two hotels Settle to play Do you remember so and so? Number three is never Say 
Sentimental bullshit, anyway. It takes more than just a memory to make me cry, and I'm happy just to sit here on a table with old friends. See which one of us can tell the biggest lie. Oh, and there's a girl. Lauren Ryan with Flame Trees. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting the world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. The township of Alice Springs has become a flashpoint in recent weeks following a surge in crime and antisocial behaviour. The situation has seen new alcohol restrictions imposed and Aboriginal peak organisations calling for a new partnership with the Northern Territory and Federal Government. But what are the long-term solutions to these issues and who is best placed to implement them? Senator for the Northern Territory and Assistant Minister for Indigenous Australians, Mullandiri McCarthy, joins me now. Thank you, Larissa. Lovely to be here with you and your listeners. Well, before we get into the issues that we were going to talk about, I just wondered if we could take a moment to just reflect a little bit on you. And I wonder if you can share with us what motivated you to go into politics. Oh, well, uh, sometimes I wonder, especially of late, but... um, it's, it's going to be, in 25, it'll be 20 years when I put my hand up for the seat of Arnhem uh, in the Northern Territory and the Northern Territory Assembly. And at the time I was, like you, working as a journalist and, and 
I felt that I wanted to give back more to the communities of the Northern Territory and I felt I could do more. And I actually felt, Louisa, incredibly blessed. You know, I felt that I'd been given opportunities and grabbed them with both hands and, you know, realised that there was so much more we needed to do. And that was really what motivated me. And I have to say there was a young Tiwi woman in the Northern Territory Assembly at the time, Marion Scrimger, who uh, captivated me. I thought she's awesome. And, of course, having the first uh, female Chief Minister in Claire Martin at the time as well. So you do look around and you see who are the role models as well, you know, who are the people that do inspire you. And uh, I'd have to say, you know, a lifelong friendship with Marion and... uh, Incredibly proud to keep working with her now through some really tough issues. Yeah, you're quite the team. Um, Just um, going back a little bit, of course, you came into politics, watched your career for a very long time, watched your career as a journalist too, and you struck me as somebody who's very connected to the community, very strong values, very culturally connected. And I was just wondering if you could share with us who were your big influences growing up? Where did you get that strength and connection from? My big influences were my family and still are my family. You know, my mum, my dad, uh, my aunties, my grandparents, and just the love uh, of culture. I'm a Yanua Gadua woman from Borolula in the Gulf of Carpentaria, and that's about a thousand kilometres southeast of Darwin. And my memories of growing up, whilst tough, it was the love and the warmth and the support that I had, especially from the women in my family. And on the non-Indigenous side, my dad, you know, he's descendant of the Irish, came out on the ship Palestine and made his way as uh, someone, uh, not that he came out on the ship Palestine, but his ancestors did. So there's this, you know, I embraced both sides of my family quite deeply from the get-go and have always believed that uh, we can have a better country when we're more open to our differences. Because there's been a lot of focus on what's happening in Alice Springs at the moment. From your perspective, what are the underlying issues that we need to understand to put what's happening there in perspective? There's quite a lot, Larissa. There's the immediate urgency of the issue, which is the need for all people to feel safe. And safety is a law and order issue, and that does come down to the role of police, of how they manage and how they uh, enable communities and towns and families in those places and businesses to feel safe. So there's that component of safety. Then there's the deeper issue of why are the children roaming? Why are the parents not there? So this is what we're trying to uh, work closely with now uh, in terms of the report by Darrell Anderson, who's been appointed as the central controller uh, for the region and to move quite swiftly. Darrell has significant background with Territory families and youth, and I have every confidence that uh, we're going to really focus on working with those families, and in particular the parents. To what extent is what we're seeing play out in Alice Springs now a result of past policy failure? Yeah, that's an important question. When the intervention came in in 2007 and for the next 15 years uh, was a regime that the First Nations people of the Territory lived under, it showed that money was not a problem. You know, uh, demountables were rolled out, uh, public servants were sent up, 
flights between Canberra and Darwin were so regular uh, because of the bu- bureaucratic input into the Territory. And so clearly that needed to happen to some extent to support uh, what they were trying to do and achieve. But there were so many um, issues with the intervention. From a very personal point of view, families felt completely disempowered, uh, afraid and wondered what was going on in their lives and needed to feel reassured. So when you look at that policy of Stronger Futures ending without an exit strategy, when it, when the intervention had occurred so dramatically with uh, soldiers coming in, with army trucks coming in, uh, you know, obviously the government of the day thought it was with good intent, but it didn't have a good outcome. And so the... The fact that they're now still talking about perhaps ADF going in, uh, that troubles me deeply. I think there are, there are far better ways of looking at how we can communicate and work with not only the people of Central Australia but right across the Territory and, and other towns across the country. You know, we're not alone. You know, we've seen some concerns raised in Western Australia and Queensland. So I think I'd like to look at even the possibility of our ranger groups. We've got terrific ranger groups around the country and uh, what fantastic role models there are there. Maybe there's a scope here to be able to expand and and work with them and see what they think uh, in the space of encouraging our young ones. Has been, of course, one of the comments that has been made from people on the ground in Alice Springs that they have consistently asked for changes and feel they're not being heard. You've sat down with people now. Are you hopeful this is an issue that's close to your heart? It's personal. You have campaigned on it. You're not new to discussing and critiquing federal policies that have impacted on the Northern Territory. You've always been a strong voice. Are you hopeful now or confident now that there is a new way forward? There has to be, Larissa. We are at a critical junction right now uh, and crossroads Uh, for not only Alice Springs, but I think for our country on many levels. And there needs to be a way through this that doesn't destroy us in the process as a people. And I mean that for all people, not just First Nations people, but all of us, uh, to not lose our humanity in the struggle and desire to find the greater good. In this new, new way forward, what is the role that you would see with the community controlled sector? Well, the Aboriginal community controlled sector is absolutely pivotal, uh, not just in Central Australia, the Territory, but across the country. Uh, it is about empowering First Nations people to be at the table, <coughs> excuse me, to be a part of uh, the solutions. And I know that uh, once you do start working together, uh, they have a really good way of uh, pointing out what the obvious solutions are. Uh, There's been an attempt to really tie the issue of the voice to Parliament with what's happening in Alice Springs, uh, perhaps unfairly. Can we sort of separate them a bit and just ask what your views are on why a voice to Parliament is important? I've been in both the Territory Parliament and the Federal Parliament now, and I know that, uh, you know, as politicians we will come and go. People say that there's 11 First Nations politicians in there now, and isn't that enough? But why did it take from 1901 from Federation this long just to get that representation? I believe it's about the future. Having a voice enshrined in the Constitution confirms 
that our descendants and First Nations people who are coming behind us will always have a legitimate say on policies that impact and affect them. There was also a new arts policy unveiled this week. It has First Nations arts as a key part of the national strategy. From your perspective, as much as a First Nations person as a politician, um, somebody who's always been very engaged with the arts sector, why is it so important that First Nations arts and culture is central to a national policy? Well, the arts itself was so neglected uh, for, for too long across the board, and we saw that over the last uh, near decade. And the announcement by um, Tony Burke and the Prime Minister this week gave heart to the arts industry. And we know that to have a healthy country, we have to have a healthy arts industry that can reflect our songs and our stories. And that is even more important for First Nations culture of our songs and our stories, the dance, so that it thrives and survives. We've always seen through places like Kakadu and many other areas of our country with the rock uh, paintings and the stories that the elders tell us that we go back into millennia, you know, over 60,000 years. I went to uh, Indonesia last year to sit with the Macassans who we used to trade with as the Anyo people. And the Macassans would sail from Macassar to the lands of the Anyo for a couple of hundred years, even before Cook arrived uh, in Australia. And so our relationship with the Macassans uh, has stayed strong. And that story and art is critical to passing on our history that goes way beyond Captain Cook. Just hearing you say that, of course, it's a story that many First Nations people know. It's probably not one that many other Australians know um, who often falsely think we never saw anyone else until Captain Cook arrived. Mm. But um, it does strike me that it, that there is a central role that that storytelling plays in a truth-telling process. And I was wondering what your reflections are on how important truth-telling is given some of the attitudes you must be finding out in the broader community when you're doing the work that you're doing. As a Yanua woman, we are known as Lianta uh, Wiriara, which means our spiritual origin comes from the sea country. And we know that our spirit uh, is essential in everything we do, whatever we do, whether we're out fishing, whether we're out camping or working or whether I'm standing in the Senate, I have to be true to the spirit in my heart. And that is the truth of me and the truth telling uh, that we live daily. It means that we're ever conscious of the fact to be the better part of ourselves. Sometimes we can be and sometimes we can't be. We're always struggling with our own spirit to be the better part of ourselves. So the concept of truth-telling, in my view, is about peace. It's about feeling at peace and being freed at peace by having told the truth. Just finally, um, obviously watching you work on some very difficult issues this week and the climate around the voices also getting much more contentious and loud. Um, it strikes me that it's not always an easy thing to be in politics, but I wonder what your advice would be for First Nations people, particularly young First Nations people who are listening mm. and also want to stand up and try and make change the way you have. What's your advice to them? I would say to anyone interested, 
please have a go. You know, it's uh, it's about the passion that you have within and whatever that passion is, whether it's for sports or for public speaking or for dance or for reading or writing, whatever it is and you would like to represent others in that, then go for it. You know, it's going to be tough. But one of the important things about representing people is that politics at the end of the day is all about people. It doesn't matter your political party, it doesn't matter your religion, it doesn't matter your sexuality, it doesn't matter your, your background. What matters is that you are open and respectful to the differences of others. And if you want to lead in that space, then you're going to take some hits. But I can tell you this, I've been doing it for so long now, and the love and the warmth and the progress that I see far outweighs the negative. Wonderful. Thank you so much for spending time with us on Speaking Out, especially this week when you had so much on. Thanks, Larissa, and thanks to your listeners. Speaking Out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio. As you heard earlier, Indigenous leaders in the Northern Territory are calling for long-term solutions to address alarming rates of crime and antisocial behaviour in Alice Springs, with a focus on improving family life, housing and education. It comes after alcohol restrictions were reintroduced in the region following high-level talks with Prime Minister Anthony Albanese and Northern Territory Chief Minister Natasha Files. In recent weeks, a number of Aboriginal community members and advocates have spoken to the ABC about the issue. Yes, we have issues. It was brought about by that report that was done a while ago and they closed down 73 communities. So their parents and them had to leave their own community to come into town to go on the Cinelink. And Alice Springs is not their town. This is not their home. So you took them out of their own home and their parents are not working anymore and most of them are working on their councils, local councils in their community, and they've lost a lot of faith in what's happening here. And you can't, they can't get, like, work in town. They don't have enough education to do that to compete against white people. So when you look at what's happening to the kids, they're devastated themselves, their parents. And the kids just run away from them and go and do these things because their parents are angry at what happened to them and it's affecting their children. So why don't this government put funding back in those communities so everybody can go home? instead of coming back to Liz and Ulling. And these things, how many white kids have been thrown into jails at that age? None. What we would see as the, as the CAGE network is that what we need is age-appropriate responses to those younger people that may be engaging in risk-taking behaviours and maybe being alongside some of their older peers and engaging in, in offending behaviour. And so we need to have a multifaceted response to those young people that isn't just targeted 
at young people that are getting in trouble, but is actually targeted across the board at all youth in our community to ensure that there's services and engagement programs that are able to keep young people engaged and active and as active participants in our community and our society. Um, The crime spike has been continually rising over the last, I reckon, about a year, but it's been building, building, building. And that building has been able to, has been provided by people not wanting to live out remote anymore. People want to access services in Alice Springs. But the coming into Alice Springs have no understanding about the rules and uh, which govern the town. And they, they come from the municipal area of the Alice Springs Town Council and uh, rules around blackfellow rules and whitefellow rules. And now and my target group in my workshops are from rehabilitation centres and uh, correctional service centres. And they come to my workshop they're not understanding rules, these men. They're not, not wanting to follow the Aboriginal rules. They're not wanting to understand the white fellow rules. They're just stuck in the middle. They're making a mess. And they end up in situations like Bond Springs Juvenile Centres, the Correctional Centres. So we've got this huge amount of people all breaking rules. And uh, those rules are broken because they're under the influence of alcohol and the rules are you can't go uh, slapping your wife, you can't go driving a car drunk, you can't go stealing cars, you can't go smashing windows, all that. It's been increased since the bringing down of the liquor restrictions. But let's not get that wrong. There was a problem with Aboriginal people and alcohol before the intervention come. But that uh, that placing of dry communities, that worked. And we had some sort of law and order. But now with the easing of that restrictions and the anti-government allowing the restrictions to not be followed anymore, no longer in place, you got these youths. These children aren't learning nothing and they need to be placed somewhere to learn, to start listening. Because at the moment, they're just getting caught up in this very loud noise. It's come to the point where there's such a drastic time in in Northern Territory history that people are plucking, plucking solutions from everywhere. And we're not going to get anywhere if we don't sort of listen to the next person, next person, think, oh, okay, that might work, that that does work, whether you're Labor or Liberal or Greens, but it's too late in the day to start bickering about what does work, what doesn't work. We need a solution. We've got up to maybe about 12 to 40 nurses. Four guys going to be guiding them each day and giving the kids a chance to have their ride and show them the land, show them some scenes and teach them about bush food. Part of this sort of thing is um, exposing young people to something that they've never probably been exposed to before. Yeah, it's good. And uh, especially teaching them how to respect 
the men here who's doing the work and the elders that's telling the stories. Because they have to know how to ride horse. What we're hoping is that by showing people how, how easy it is actually um, to get some therapeutic outcomes quickly, the most remarkable thing is, is that some young people that have been with us a while and sort of different new, new, new people, a whole other sides who have come out. And I think it's to do with the space and the large animals and being around people that care. This is um, something that has, has, has been the product of years and years and years of failed policy. One of those failed policies is the Northern Territory intervention. You know, there were some highlights in that, but it was knee-jerk. It was knee-jerk. It only ever dealt with problems at the top layer and didn't bring in the medium and long-term solutions that we needed. And we're looking at things like, um, you know, the defunding of youth services. We're looking at the failed investment in remote community services. We're looking at the inability to provide adequate housing for people. That didn't happen overnight. It happened over years and years and years, and it's something that has been consistently ignored. And yet, if you listen to people on the ground, if you listen to those communities, they've been asking for it. They been saying this is what we actually need. We need to be empowered. We need to be able to solve these solutions ourselves. We need to be caring for our most vulnerable and we need to stop these problems before they even start. I think, again, when we go back to what the Commissioner said there in relation to you know, not being able to police your way out of this, no, you can't. It is impossible to police your way out of this because when you think about it, the number of, say, for example, children in juvenile detention has escalated. We are seeing more children in juvenile detention than we've ever seen before, and yet the crime rate is still spiking. It shows that there is something wrong with that approach. I think there's a huge risk in knee-jerk reactions demonising and dehumanising the most vulnerable population. Now, that's not to say that what is happening in Alice Springs or in any of the regional and remote areas that we have in Australia and even some of our capital cities isn't deeply distressing and deeply concerning. I see it myself and I'm worried about it myself. I'm worried for my children children and my family, just like everybody else. But it is not a heavy-handed approach. We do need a three-pronged approach, and that is what happens right now. You cannot commit crimes, right? And there has to be consequences for bad behaviour. People deserve to be safe. But what do we do in the interim period? The first one is get the children off the street, get people off the street, and then work on what is underlying that. The second, the second one, of course, is your medium-term solution. Start identifying where the gaps in service delivery are, and they are massive and they've happened over years and years and years. This will not be a quick response. The third one is long-term solutions. But unless we're looking at the entire ecology, we're all, all we're doing is slapping a Band-Aid on.
Mm-hmm.
that's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we mark 30 years of our sister program Away, Indigenous Arts and Culture on Radio National. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and Manel Creed. You can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Barrett.